Welcome to CinemaScope, a new podcast from True Story FM. Hi, I'm Andy Nelson, co-host of the Next Real Film podcast and Movies We Like. As a passionate movie lover, I've always relished exploring the diverse landscape of cinema. And when you look closer at the taxonomy of genres, subgenres, and film movements, you see an intricate web of interconnections and influences. This complex cinematic family tree spans only 125 years. So how did styles as diverse as the French New Wave, New Queer Cinema, and Ozploitation emerge? What cultural, economic, and technological forces sculpted these styles? And what hidden threads unite them all as part of the same fantastic art form? Those questions sent me on a journey to explore each style and trace their impacts, all to better understand the bridges between different styles. And that led me here to CinemaScope. In each episode, I'll be exploring one particular genre, subgenre, or film movement in depth, inviting expert guests to help us all better understand what defines that style, how it came to be, and what branches it, in turn, influenced on this big cinematic family tree. For example, how did German Expressionism shape American film noir? What's the difference between Westerns, Spaghetti Westerns, and Brazilian Nordesterns? We'll examine the economic and socio-political forces that birthed categories like black exploitation, and we'll spotlight visionary films and directors key to the evolution of different styles. So join me as we explore the complex forces that shape film's evolution and appreciate the diverse creativity possible in its relatively brief history. Let Cinemascope be your guide to understanding this art form we cherish how its genres blend, bounce off each other, and advance a rich tapestry of storytelling innovation. Together, we'll gain a deeper appreciation for this wondrous, shape-shifting medium. Our journey begins soon. Be part of this adventure by subscribing to CinemaScope today. Real everybody, I'm Pete Wright, and that there is Andy Nelson. Hey, hey, hey! And we spoil movies. Tonight on the show, the last in our series of the films of Pablo Lorraine, with his 2012 political exploration and internet search disaster, No. Before we get into that, you should learn more about us at thenextreel.com, subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app, or follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Next Reel. And if you're a regular listener of the show, and you're interested in supporting our ongoing work investigating great film, please consider a regular donation through our Patreon page at patreon.com slash thenextreel. And don't forget, we've got a Listener's Choice episode coming right up. Patreon patrons are automatically entered into a drawing to tell us what film to discuss and join us on the show to make their case why. And with that, Andy, we've got a blot spot. Friend of the show, Ben Lott, has written in with his rebound on Postmortem. Postmortem was another tedious watch for me. Again, I did not care for the actors or the characters they were playing, but more annoying is the fact that so little happens in this film. It's slow and plodding to a fault. The only thing I liked more than Tony Monero was the fact that the lead character wasn't totally despicable. It's better to be bored rather than actively repulsed, I suppose. Your rank 245, my rank 294. Ouch. Okay. Ouch. <laughs> Ouch. And what's you know what's funny about that is the movie is actually aged even better on me. Yeah, me too. 
You know, I, I feel like there was stuff we even uncovered uh, between last week's show and this week's show that is is probably worth following up on. I mean, there were some some crazy sort of bits of sleight of hand in this film that uh, um, that I think changed the way the narrative plays out in my head. Do you know what I'm talking about? Oh, absolutely. Particularly the uh, as as you as you started pointing out, but neither of us really had a handle on it at the time. The whole idea that Nancy. Uh, we actually see that he's taking care of her body early on in the film. And it's it's kind of like a, you know, chronology that uh, Lorraine is playing with in the film. Um, it's very strange, especially because, uh, I, I mean, I suppose it says a lot, the fact that uh, that Mario really doesn't react at all when he's dealing with her body. Right, right. And the fact that I'm I'm not entirely sure how the chronology is supposed to play out. Are we supposed to believe that everything that happens in the hospital is is after the uh, the coup in her house? Uh, it, you know, and the, and that in fact the film is sort of intercut before and after that period. I, I I don't know, but it absolutely makes me rethink the way. Uh, the film is laid out for us and and makes it that much more interesting to look at. And you actually uncovered a thing about uh, 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 from uh, Lorraine and his comment on the last scene uh, from that film. Yes, uh, Pablo, in an interview with BFI, he said, um, many people ask, why are guys from your generation talking about this? I can only speak for myself. Chile divides into the people who lived during the military coup and the people who didn't. I didn't. I was born under the dictatorship in 1976 and grew up hearing tales about the coup, which turned into a sealed box, an enigma that captured my imagination. The period is a mystery to me. It's something that you try to understand, but you can never reach. There are still aspects of that time that we need to investigate. The ending of my film is a metaphor for all the crap that Chile has swept under the carpet. Mm. So I think that's really interesting that, you know, he... And I think this is something that he's doing a lot in his films is he's finding these ways to insert these uh, symbolic um, uh, moments about ch- about what he's saying about Chile into these films and the characters. And perhaps maybe that's why some of them are a little more uh, difficult for us to get into because we're not understanding some of that symbolism. Right, right. But um, yeah, it adds a really interesting, powerful layer to this film. And uh, yeah, like you, I find myself really drawn to this film more and more as time goes by. I can't uh, argue with Ben about the pacing of the film. It's pretty slow. And I still find myself frustrated by uh, the our protagonist that he's, he's you know, he's, he's a challenging voice to carry the narrative of the film. But again, I, man, it's, it's given me much more to think about than I initially experienced. Uh, so I, with that, Andy, I think it's time. Let's do trailers. <laughs> Exhausted, Andy. My trailer is, of course, just dropped. Uh, Blade Runner 2049. Now, I should say, I am very close to Blade Runner, the original film. I am very close to that film. I really love that film. And I think that I I, I am sure that that is coloring my opinion of the, the first official full-length trailer of Denis Villeneuve's um, take on Blade Runner, Blade Runner 2049, starring, um, well, you know, starring uh, Harrison Ford, Ryan Gosling, Anna Darmas, Robin Wright's in it, Jared Leto, doesn't have long hair in it. Actually, he does. I think he does again. He does. And crazy eyes. And crazy eyes. That's what I got got caught up in. Uh, And uh, Dave Bautista. (laughs) Dave Bautista. 
Bautista. <laughs> right. <laughs> that actually, I'm very excited about that. Uh, a screenplay by uh, Hampton Fancher and, and Michael Green and um, a couple more credits there. But, it, you know, this is, I, I feel like the trailer delivered exactly what I was afraid of, which is a story that feels fairly predictable, feels like Harrison Ford has been shoehorned into a story uh, that, uh, a beloved story and may not have quite enough weight to carry. It worries me. Um, I I enjoyed Harrison Ford being shoehorned into The Force Awakens, but that was a critique. I'm not sure that, uh, or a critique I heard, uh, I'm not sure that this film needed Harrison Ford. Uh, I'm not sure it needed to be made in the first place. I found I really wanted it to come out and affect me, and I am I am affected, but I think in the wrong way. I I feel like you before The Force Awakens, and I'm just I'm maybe I'm this is the the backfire effect where I have been presented with something that challenges my worldview, so I'm doubling down on really not liking it. This is the, uh, uh, the Steve Sarmento Memorial um, Kelly Reichardt feeling. Uh, which is, (laughs) you know, and so I know that I know this experience. I know this experience. I am worried about it uh, because I want this to be awesome. And the trailer did not make me feel awesome. There back when we were talking about star Wars, the force awakens, you were there for me to, to help see the other side when I had locked my inner child away and Uh wouldn't let him out. Uh-huh. Unfortunately, I can't be that person for you, Pete. <laughs> I feel the same. I uh. I think it looks gorgeous. I think Denis Villeneuve is is just one of the the one of my favorite directors right now. I mean, I, yeah. everything he does is really special in uh, very different ways. I really like um, every most everything that he's done. There's one that stands out as one that I really <laughs> struggle with, but for the most part, most part, I love everything that he does. Um, I, and I also love Blade Runner. I have uh, just a, a huge passion for that particular film. And um, I think that everything looks right. I think everything is just just to a T, looks great. I like hearing little hints of some of the uh, Vangelis score kind of coming up. I don't think it's him, but no, it still not. has kind of some of the, the, the themes that I hear. Uh, but the story, like you, really makes me nervous because it just feels like, you know, Hollywood sticking a, a story in here, especially because I, 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 and maybe it's because I'm really concerned because I, based on how Blade Runner ends, it really, I, I can't figure out why, uh, uh, why Harrison Ford is still around. And so I have a lot of concerns about the film in general. And yeah. I just don't know what to think about it. I, I, I don't want it to be something that they, they found a way to write around it in order to shoehorn a sequel in. That's um, what it feels like, Andy. That's yeah, what it feels like. I know, and it makes me really nervous. So I'm right there with you, and I'm very frustrated because I really want to be excited about it, but I, I'm going to have to reserve judgment on it until I've seen it and just hope that it's something that uh, ended up being okay. Just It's exhausting, man. It's just exhausting. This, on the heels of hearing reports that Alien's not looking great, I'm I'm tired. <laughs> Uh, music on this one is uh, Johan Johansson, is an Icelandic yeah. composer, and we know him from uh, Theory of Everything and Prisoners. Obviously, another uh, Villeneuve and, and Arrival. Uh, I, I really adored uh, Arrival. I thought the score was really fitting. So we'll see. Uh, it, but you're right. It, on a very positive note, um, I do uh, the the hints of Vangelis that pop up in the score, at least in the trailer. It feels almost like they used parts of the score. <laughs> 
it doesn't, I don't know that we're hearing new music yet, um, but it was cut funny. So I, I don't know. Well, I'm, I was wondering if Johan was was doing something uh, similar to what they did in Superman Returns, where they took some of John Williams' themes and yeah. reintegrated them into right. the film. Which you know, I'd like to think that they would do that and, and so. keep that feel. I will say, I got a real kick out of the uh, the car flying um, between the the or next to the big Atari side. The Atari side, the, refle- <laughs> the reflection. Yeah, that was great. Uh, release dates on this one. Uh, it's going to be one of those. Great big global releases. Starts in France and Italy on October 4th. Uh, October 5th, it opens wide. October 6th, we get it in the U.S., but there are a lot of countries that are going to see this open up uh, until, I'm sorry, Hong Kong and Japan get it the 26th and 27th of October. And interestingly, no release date yet for China. So I don't know what that means. Maybe no Chinese money in this film. (laughs) That might be it. That might be it. Well, my trailer, Pete, is The Big Sick, a, uh, a romantic comedy that uh, really struck me when I watch it, uh, mainly because there's a an honest sense about this trailer. It feels... Uh, I, I had a sense that these characters, uh, everything about it, the story, the characters, um, was really authentic. And I just loved everything that was happening in this trailer. It just made me so happy to watch this because I, you know, I love genre films, um, but... I get really excited when I see something that um, is a genre film, but they're doing something a little different with it. And this just, there was something about the way that this story kind of progressed where, you know, this this guy uh, kind of falls for this girl, but then um, just after they break up, you know, he's trying to make amends. She ends up getting put into a medically induced coma for some uh, illness she's uh, uh, gotten. And uh, and then he kind of deals with it and uh, has to deal with it and deal with a, kind of his relationship with her parents. And, and it just seemed like this really beautiful story. And I just got super excited watching this trailer. Uh, it's directed by Michael Showalter, written by Emily V. Gordon and, and Kumail Nanjiani, who um, is in, you know, I've never seen... If you can uh, believe it, Pete, don't, which I'm sure you can, but I've never don't. seen Silicon Valley. What? Of which he plays Dinesh, or in which he plays Dinesh. Um, yes, I've never seen it. I'm going through it um, twice now, man. This is, this is round heard, two. I've heard nothing but good things. I know, I know, I know. But he was also in Fist Fight recently, and of course he's in the upcoming Leg- Lego Ninjago movie playing Jay, which I think is great. Um, but yeah, uh, Kumail plays the uh, the love interest uh, in the film uh, with Zoe Kazan, who we talked about recently on our favorite film, Meek's Cutoff. Um, <laughs> and her parents, of course, Holly Hunter and Ray Romano. Um, I just, this trailer, I got so excited watching this trailer because I just, I mean, just from watching this two and a half minute clip, I felt wholly invested with these characters and just couldn't wait to see what happened with their story. So uh, what do you think of this one? Oh, I'm totally in. I got very excited when they when I first saw this trailer. And, uh, you know, I'm such a huge fan of Kumail Nanjani. And, and he's, I mean, he's just, he's a riot. You know, he's he's also on uh, Doug Loves Movies every now and again. He's uh, doing stand-up all the time. And and uh, and so it's it's fun to see him, like, crop up in, in all my podcasts. It, it puts him pretty high on the list of my best friends who have not met me yet, Andy. Like... I, yeah. I this is a dude I think who would really like us if he had some time to <laughs> hang out with us. So uh, we're gonna we're gonna hope those paths cross. Anybody who is listening, if you know Kumail, please put him in touch. We would love to uh, have him on the show, do a little speakeasy, and maybe just hang out and go bowling or something. You know, 
whatever you do. Besties. Yeah. Oh, we'd be so tight. We would be super tight. Uh, I was very excited to see Ray Romano. That one really uh, stuck out to me because he feels like he's sort of transcended um, the the goofy middle-aged guy, and he's moved into this chapter of being the the funny stoic dad part. And I I think he's particularly well-equipped to do that. I think the beard works like the grumpy... Uh, the grumpy straight guy is is it's a good thing for Ray. So I I was very excited to see that. Of course, Holly Hunter. Um, you know, of of all things, this made me think of the the uh, uh, Bill Paxton and Glenn Headley in the Circle, like as huh, yeah actors that I really enjoy playing a, a old married couple that I found myself really attracted to. You know, um, in in that sort of parental respect, I thought that was really great, and this is what I felt in watching the trailer. So, uh, with Holly Hunter and Ray. So there you go. Awesome. Well, this film premiered at Sundance, and it's kind of been making its rounds in the uh, festival circuit. But it's going to have a limited release June twenty third, a bigger release July fourteenth. But then it'll open, uh, you know, between June twenty third and November sixteenth in a number of countries, including Netherlands, Belgium, the UK, Norway, and right now Germany is the last country that has a release date, November sixteenth, twenty seventeen. Excellent. Can't wait, Andy. What the hell is a mime doing in the middle of the movie? We're talking about no, Andy. Yes. This is the uh, the third in our in the unofficial trilogy of the uh, uh, the the story of Allende and Pinochet uh, in Chile from director Pablo Lorraine. Uh, writers Pedro Perano wrote the screenplay. This is based on the, I, I believe, unpublished. Is that what we, we found? I couldn't find it. You uh, Unpublished it's, play? Yeah, it's unpublished play, El Plebiscito by Antonio Scarmetta. That's, there we go. Uh, stars uh, Gael Garcia Bernal, Alfredo Castro, again, Antonio Ziggers, and more. Um, and it, it is the story of an advertising executive uh, who is charged with coming up for a campaign to help defeat Augusto Pinochet in the 1988 referendum. And man, does it just scream 80s. How did it hit you, Andy? (laughs) Yes, it is very uh, 80s. And, you know, I really enjoyed this film. It was a really interesting glimpse into uh, life kind of at uh, at this kind of turning point in a dictatorship. I mean, Pinochet by this time had been running the country about 16 years by the time they uh, they had kind of set this whole thing up for this referendum vote and everything. And uh, it was kind of a difficult life for people. And I think um, this film captured that tone well as far as people who, um, you know, these different political parties who were kind of content with how things were going, the just the run-of-the-mill everyday people who were like, no, it's fine, you know, like when they were talking to the maid, um, and she's just like, no, I, I'm fine with him, it's, you know, my kids are in school, I've got a job, and, you know, she kind of 
is okay, kind of shrugging her shoulders and dismissing any of the bad things that might have happened. It it really uh, painted an interesting portrait of life at this time and just how complicated it was and how frightening it was uh, with this whole idea of, hey, this dictator is letting us have a vote. I mean, how strange is that for a dictator to all of a sudden have this idea? And, um, and how kind of uncomfortable it was for people on that side creating this no campaign um, because they were all of a sudden put in the spotlight and they were being followed and, and you didn't know. I mean, people, you know, if a dictator says, yeah, go out and vote. If you vote no, does the dictator all of a sudden like have your name and, and are you going to be found dead? I mean, there's, I don't know, it, it's this interesting portrait of a society and I really liked it. I enjoyed kind of this glimpse through the eyes of this ad exec and, and, and really I also enjoyed the glimpse of the advertising world and it's uh, kind of it's, uh, you know, how uncomfortable they are. It is as a bedfellow with politics and but how it works in frightening ways. Did you do you are you a this American life uh, listener? I have listened to it like today, not today <laughs> <laughs> the past couple of weeks they did a uh, they did a, a, a recipe they did a recipe they did an episode uh, on um, the the experience of of living in Russia and supporting Vladimir Putin and I could not help but notice the parallels because the grandmothers on the street in these interviews say the literally the same words. Man, those days are behind us. Nah, you know, he's a, he's a singer. He's a dancer. He's a very strong man. I mean, it's like the same propaganda uh, that is is uh, that we see at this in this film at this time uh, we're seeing right now in, in Russia. It's a little bit of an aside, but it was just a fascinating kind of a, a exploration of parallels um, uh, between these these two stories. I There were some things that I really liked. The one that I want to shout out just right now, and I'm sure we'll talk about it again, it's the visual treatment of the film. And I'm deeply torn on it. Uh, what they elected to do, and I think they did the, the last two films as well, right, is they they treat the film or shot the film in such a way uh, that it was, it looks of the period. So in this case, we're now in the 80s. And so it is shot using the same technology that was used to shoot, you know, broadcast advertising for broadcast television. And so they've, you know, they're lugging around these three-quarter inch tapes, you know, they've got these big libraries of tapes, and that's that's what you can imagine them filming on. And uh, I, I thought it was clever, uh, but man, eventually I found it super distracting. And there are pieces of it that, uh, you know, s- certain sequences where, you know, the fringing and the highlights are just such that you, you almost can't even look at the screen if you're watching it on a large, uh, a larger television. So I, I had a tough time with that. Um, I, the cultural implications of this film, I thought, were particularly uh, touching. This whole parallel between the American dream and the, the Chilean dream, um, you know, that we, we have this one sequence where the team is coming together and they have this message, you know, anyone can be rich. You know, you can't lose when everyone is betting on the same thing, right? The, the dream of opportunity is not the same as a dream of a guarantee. And uh, they were playing with that in, in a lot of the messages that they came up with. I thought that was really um, fantastic. But the, the, the biggest piece that I, I found haunting uh, and funny and ultimately disappointing is the influence of American media culture now uh, on the Chilean 
you know, Chilean political culture. We've talked about the impact of the American cultural sort of regime in the last two movies as portrayed in those films. And Tony Manero is the entertainment culture through Saturday Night Fever. And then, uh, you know, in, in postmortem, it was the um, much more sort of understated uh, but always looming CIA uh, backing of the uh, coup in Chile, uh, as demonstrated in postmortem. And here it is advertising. And the way the film portrays, um, you know, advertising as being modeled off of this new modern style that you see in America uh, is something that I found really almost grotesque. The fact that that influence helped define ultimately a a positive outcome for the country it, it just it haunts me yeah it's very interesting um and it's interesting that you bring that up because it certainly was something that the film was criticized for um when it came out i mean there are you know a couple uh critics in chile one was a, a chilean political science professor who who was concerned if we were really if they should really be celebrating the moment that political activism turned into marketing rather right. than a discussion of principles, which was a big one. Uh, and then the other the other um, critic that I uh, read said that they accused the film of simplifying the history and in particular focusing exclusively on the TV ad campaign, ignoring the grassroots voter registration they did, uh, really trying to get people around the country to vote. Um, so the film really did focus on that. And I mean, Lorraine defended his film saying it's not a documentary, it's art, it's not a testament, it's just the way that we looked at it. I think to that end, it speaks to how Lorraine really um, makes his films and enters these worlds. And I did finally watch Jackie, and he does the same thing there, where you're seeing a a big moment, but through very specific eyes. And and I really appreciate that in in the films that uh, and the way that he does that in his films and the way that he did it here. I definitely see your point, and I, I I can see that yes, you know, that it's there is this frightening element to the fact that that the uh, I mean politics, it's you know, it's turning into this marketing machine, and it's really scary how that all, change happens, and people you know bite off on it so well. I mean, to the point where they kick out the dictator in in Chile, and I mean, it's it's really interesting the way that that all works. Um, I don't know if it bothered me though as much as it bothered you though. No, and and I should say it, I don't. It didn't bother me, and I don't even find that a, a critique. It I actually that's one of the things that makes it such a compelling you know discussion uh, yeah. of, of the period. I'm I don't hold it against the film at all. In fact, I'm I really applaud the film for taking it taking on this period uh, from that perspective. I and and the fact that I find it a little bit disgusting is actually a compliment. To the film, I think it, it portrays okay. exactly what it needs to portray. Um, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, r- when right? you said disappointing earlier, I thought you was you were disappointed in the way that it did it. No, no, Andy. Let me be clear. I'm disappointed in humanity. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, now I get it. <laughs> uh, you know, and and you know, I made a, a comment in the notes uh, about. Uh, mimes, and it, it wasn't really a significant comment, but I, I do think that the mime for me becomes, there are two really important symbols, actually. The mime is one, and the microwave is another, right? It's These are, are symbols on the opposite ends of the spectrum here, where on, on one end we have a mime which ultimately represents the most frivolous, the most vapid, the most empty symbol of entertainment engagement as portrayed here. No offense to those who mime, uh, but 
mimes are not portrayed as terribly weighty symbols of American excellence in this film. Uh, on the other hand, we have microwaves where they're just being introduced. They're working on a campaign for microwaves uh, in their ad agency, and they're so excited about microwaves and they're in the, the the melted cheese and the hot cheese sandwiches and everything's great until they get to the shoot and he actually says under his breath, you know, best not to stand right there. Uh, the, the radiation will kill you. <laughs> <laughs> okay, here's the great symbol of innovation is also a death wish. So congratulations. And that that actually mirrors the experience of of the, the film for me, which I, I think is I, I, it's really great. Well, and also, I, I just found it so interesting in talking about kind of advertising um, and just selling product, how politics becomes this product. You start, uh, I mean, not to jump into our first shot, last shot, but we're, you start the film and end the film with these pitches that he has. And, and, and it's essentially the exact same pitch. And, he, and uh, as he's selling these different products at the beginning of the film, you get another one in the middle. And it's, it's kind of the same pitch yeah. in the middle too. But this is when he's pitching to the no campaigners um, the direction that they want to go with, uh, with the video campaign. And it's kind of, uh, I, don't, I guess, eye-opening, um, maybe to a certain extent, that that this is how he views the world as just a, you know a way to sell a product, and he sees this this whole idea of no as a pro- another product that he's selling. I mean, I think he may believe it more um, and want to kind of in the end he wants to see this change, but at the same time, it's like it's it still is just a product. And it speaks volumes to kind of how he sees the world and his, you know, his look at everything, um, but also just, you know, this frightening uh, look at advertising and how um, everybody has gotten uh, a handle on how to sell things. And you certainly see that in our country with politics. I mean, it's just very clear how, um, how politics has kind of infested um, all of these different things and advertising is, is the driving force behind it. Uh, can I just say, as an aside, Andy, you sent me a picture in Slack. Would you would you describe Would you describe that picture? I sent you a picture of Pinochet dead. Well, that's that's put it. That's that's really not selling the the uh, the real aesthetic of the picture. Well, it's a a woman leaning over his uh, the coffin, looking through the glass at his dead body. Yeah, I think is she is she kissing it. The glass. I don't know if she's cover? kissing or just examining mm-hmm. it closely to see is he really dead or is she going to spit on it. Uh, I don't yeah. know, but I found the picture so interesting because of that, um, because of that particular person leaning over, and I, I don't know. It just it, to me it spoke volumes of Pinochet and uh, kind of this this interesting life that he had within the country. I I thought it was it was moving. I didn't know why you sent it. I thought maybe there was an off chance that you wanted me to see just how much Pinochet looked like Pat Morita. <laughs> and the well, answer I didn't make that connection, but thank the, you. <laughs> the answer to that question, Andy, is a lot. <laughs> oh, poor Pat. Can we can we talk just a little bit about the script, Pedro Peirano? What do you think? Is that pretty close? Pedro Perano, yeah. Pedro Perano did the adaptation, uh, as you've already mentioned, by the uh, based on the unpublished play El Plebiscito, the referendum by Antonio Scarmenta. Uh, what did you What did you think of the of the um, structure of the play of the script? 
I I liked how it took this this our protagonist uh, Renee, and we we see this journey that he goes on of of becoming this this part of this uh, this um, campaign. Um, we see this relationship he has with his boss and how um, that uh, and his boss, who happens to be um, doing pretty much the exact same position before the Yes campaign. Um, we see his relationship with uh, Veronica, his, um, I don't know if she was his ex-wife or his girlfriend, but whoever it is, uh, she is the mother of his son. And uh, we kind of see that relationship, which is interesting because she is kind of a political rebel, which I uh, I found really interesting, and and his relationship with his son. And we, we get kind of these different relationships and, and also just everybody on the No campaign, but we see um, his life through these different spectrums, and it's really interesting to see how it all kind of plays out. I enjoyed how how the uh, the script kind of uh, danced around with all those different worlds, and I really enjoy the way that it incorporates so much of the yes and no campaigns into the script, and we get to see a lot of the actual videos that they had done, um, the creation of those videos, the conversations about you know uh, the videos and and kind of the back and forth. Um, changing of their plans to kind of compensate to uh, attack the other video, things like that. Um, I, I thought it was actually really well structured, and it had some moments that really uh, just struck me. And I, I think one of the big ones was just kind of seeing Renee after the victory at the end, and just kind of that that moment of, you know, uh, you know, the way that he reacts. It's so. Um, quiet compared to everybody else. And it really struck me as, as this interesting uh, way to kind of take something in like this, where it's almost like he was involved in it, but he never seemed like, you know, so much of the political persuasion. Like he couldn't even name like the different political parties that represented the colors and all that. <laughs> um, uh, you know, it's just like one of those things like, well, okay, well, I did it. I, you know, my campaign was a success, but what does it really mean? And it's almost like he wasn't even sure. And I, I found that really interesting. And so seeing those elements coming through in this in this story, um, I I found very strong. So I I really enjoyed this script. Yeah, I I agree with you, and particularly the characters. And it, you know, you as you talk about um, you know the, the character of Renee, uh, I part of this is because we have somebody as. Sort of adept at these sorts of characters as Gail Garcia Bernal playing it, but but part of it really is that this was a character that was written with a number of different angles that are important, right? They're important in in terms of showing, demonstrating who this character is. As you mentioned, you know, we get to see who he is uh, not because he tells us who he is, but because we see him not be able to to um, you know name the the political parties. We see him uh, do the same sort of campaign over and over and over again, but because because of this character's sort of panache and in speaking to, you know, executives, uh, he's able to sell them that this is an original idea every time he does it. He really is ultimately kind of a one-trick pony uh, in the advertising business who has, you know, experienced some success, but for what? You know, almost as vapid and empty as the products he's selling. And it is only when he sort of this this character uh, has to face the fact that it's his boss and partner at the ad agency that has been asked to do the other side of of this thing that he gets interested in trying to do some things and and ends up you know aligning with a team that is uh, that that can help him create this vision but 
it's it's we are celebrating and we are supporting a character that isn't all that talented. I mean, talk about a guy who has ultimately failed up into a position of of notoriety. Yeah, that's an interesting way of looking at his character and how he kind of has gotten to this place. And but you know, I think that's what's funny about some of these worlds, like uh, advertising and. And uh, I mean, just even the film world, I mean, there are plenty of people in these worlds who do that, who end up in these high up positions um, just by uh, circumstance. And, um, you know, you, you always wonder, like, God, how did that person get to where they are? Truly. Um, and, you know, he certainly could be that way. I mean, you know, you see what he's making, the, the, the commercial for the soda pop. And then at the end, we have this this kind of terrible... Um, it's like almost like a fake news uh, commercial for the soap opera, and it's like uh, it's like yeah, that's yeah, somebody paid a lot of money to get that stuff made, and uh, and he made a lot from it because uh, they think that he's the best. Well, and, you, know, you know, what's interesting too about that is that it it shows how empty the disagreement is between him and his partner, right? That that they they were frustrated by each other and making their own little moves, but in fact. Uh, at the end, they were still together doing their own thing, selling their own products, making their vapid templated uh, commercial spots. And uh, as, as strong as they may have convinced themselves that they felt about these products, they, they didn't demonstrate um, you know, anything more than the political campaign being just another job. Yeah, yeah. Very true. It's interesting, and I I like that about it. It's, Me too. It's it's just a very interesting way to tell this story, um, and I think Pablo, as the director, um, having seen these three films, it's just nice seeing how he kind of um, he's a director who really likes to experiment and try things and. Uh, I mean, there are things that he seems to fall back on quite a bit. The jump cuts, he still consistently keeps up with the jump cuts uh, throughout this film. Um, but I, I got to interject. Know- I got to interject. It's the sin of the brainstorm, Andy. <laughs> this These okay. jump cuts drive me batty. And he is certainly not the only director to make these choices with the script. But this makes me crazy. I'm going to describe it. Tell me that you know what I'm talking about. We have two characters that are obviously in, about to engage in a montage. They are brainstorming together about something. The, if you just read the script, the script, it would be like one conversation that never ends, right? It's a, it's a long, seamless conversation that goes from idea to idea to idea and logically builds on itself. And it feels like that conversation could take place in about two or three minutes. And between these two people sitting in a room on a couch, side by side, it would be fine. But when you watch the film, it turns out every other line, they smash cut to another location at another time of day. As if these people said two lines, then went and got in a car, drove someplace else, not speaking at all, so that they could pick up the conversation exactly where they left off, uh, you know, 10 miles away uh, at sundown. And that makes me insane. (laughs) I totally know what you mean. And I thought the exact same thing. (laughs) I just kept writing on my paper, more jump cutting, more jump cutting. It's, no, it's it's uh, it is it, it is one of those um, montage like conversation montage elements that uh, that I always struggle with in films for that exact reason because it's it's a nonsensical way to have a conversation and it really I think filmmakers do it only to kind of break up something that otherwise would be fairly monotonous 
And it's interesting, I guess, to, to visually break it up that way, but it doesn't work when you actually think about the context of it. So it's it's a cinematic trick that I think for us doesn't necessarily work. It, it's a cinematic trick. It could go back to the script, too. Like, this could be written around, you know, assuming that you write the conversation as if time has passed. You know what I mean? Like, there are ways to get through this uh, and make it feel like, uh, like we're actually making progress. And this... God, this didn't, and it happened several times uh, throughout this uh, throughout the film. Anyway, you were saying. Well, as I was saying, uh, it is certainly something that uh, that Lorraine um, falls back on as one of kind of the tropes. But I do like that he continues to experiment, and I, in particular, you talked about the the look of the film and that video, that kind of uh, that umatic tape format that they filmed this with, that really lent um, beautifully, I thought, to the film. As much as I struggled with it in the beginning, by the time I hit the ending, I was just in love with it. I thought it was a great choice. But it's a, um, you know, it's an interesting way to kind of create this world. And I, I like that Lorraine is finding these ways to kind of experiment and play around with and, and tell stories in ways that uh, make a lot of sense. I also really appreciated that he uh, found ways, at, well, and by using this video format, he found ways to kind of bring real archival footage into the mix of everything that he was doing that you couldn't tell, like where, you know, where reality began and and the uh, fictional uh, film work be, uh, began. And it was, um, I, I just, I, I loved it. And, and so that's something that he did here that um, I thought made this feel like just wholly authentic. I, I loved it. That that is a, a really great point because it's sort of a trick of the eye, right? Where uh, and you know I would notice it uh, where we would have what looked like an older actor dressed in a suit, and he would be talking. He'd be, like the news. There's a news broadcaster in the the part of the no campaign, and we see him a number of times. And uh, he's an older actor. He would um, be talking to, you know, Renee off camera, and then he would immediately turn into the broadcast camera that he's about to start his broadcast. And then we cut to the television watching him, and it's a younger guy. And you're thinking, that's not right. What is that all about? Now, <laughs> if, if I understand this right, please educate me. I think that is the same guy but now, of course, it's, you know, 20 years later, 25 years later, it right? It absolutely was. They did that with a number of people where they actually cast some of the real players in their roles. And that particular person that you're talking about, I think, um, happens to be, uh, if I can remember the name right, Patricio uh, Alwyn, who became, after this whole thing, um, he was the first person elected as president of Chile uh, democratically after uh, Pinochet uh, kind of uh, did this whole thing. And so he actually participated in the film and uh, played himself. And uh, yes, and what they did is they cut to the footage of him um, in the film. But yes, you can tell like he's very much younger. But they did that a lot. They they found the real people. Like when you have the, the women singing the song, um, those were the real singers that did it back in like 20 some years ago. And they did that all through it. And um I found that really interesting, especially those moments like what you're talking about, where they cut from the real guy to or the real guy now to the real guy then. 
um, you know, it's an interesting way to kind of blend this, this, this fiction and the reality. And uh, I mean, I think it was just really sharp. Super effective. And, you know, I, I feel like we have to call that as a, uh, a, a stamp, like, like a Lorraine stamp, because he's, he's done, you know, these kinds of tricks where he's, he, he's played with time in terms of the narrative. Now he's played with time in terms of the participants in the real story as he's telling this true story. And, and I think that is uh, an incredibly engaging trick, and it is not showy at all. I mean, it's not something that he's like. It, it, it's it's not like Michael Bay explosion stamp. It's it is super subtle, and uh, and it really makes you watch closely. And and I found that um, really engaging and uh, uh, deep into the narrative as a result. And he does that also in uh, Jackie, where he'll he'll cut to some some archival footage, um, and then he'll cut to the actors and everything, um, almost in like it's a newsreel footage. And it, I tell you, it's a really effective way to just help really paint this world. I mean, it just, it's, it's a very effective tool that he's kind of been developing here. Uh, shall we talk first shot, last shot? Yes, uh, the first shot. After we have our titles um, on this, uh, on paper, which was a great way to kind of do it, and the setup of history of Pinochet and Chile at the time, we get a one and a half minute close up of uh, Gael's character, Rene, doing his advertising pitch, setting up the audience and the clients to view this new rough spot that they've cut together for free soda. And the last shot, uh, we have yet another pitch. He is uh, pitching to his clients and prepping them for this soap opera's fake news ad that they've done where the the beauty, uh, the beautiful women are on top of this uh, building and the helicopter comes in with the heart throb in it carrying uh, some flowers. Uh, we cut to another close-up of Renee as he watches it. And uh, afterward, we, uh, you know, as the, the film ends, we cut to the credits. And it's, again, the, the great sort of paper, uh, lifting the paper pad of, of paper uh, to do the, the main credits and cut to a post or sort of mid-credit roll, which is the transition away from Pinochet. I like the uh, the connection here to the advertising and politics and just, uh, uh, well, I mean, it's really, you set up the world of the political uh, story that we have here, but then you get this advertising salesman doing his, just an incredible job of selling you. And his pitch is just this, I mean, you know, it's like Chile is ready for this. And it's, I mean, it sounds like he's doing kind of a political pitch. And then you see what he's pitching and you're like, oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> Well, and, and I think so, it's it's funny and symbolic that the soda is actually called free soda, and the very right. last shot of the film is the country going essentially free, free of the reign of Pinochet. Yes. That's it. I, I may be reaching for that one, but I, it feels good. <laughs> feels good to stretch like But that. it's there. Yeah. It's there. Yeah. yeah. No, it, I think it's just a nice uh, open and close on him as we're kind of really seeing him in his world. Um, everything around him can change, but here he is still doing these meaningless, meaningless pitches to his clients. Let's uh, let's run through just a couple of members of the cast, that, it, particularly the cast that we've seen before. Before uh, those are the ones I'm really interested in. Obviously, we've mentioned Gael Garcia Bernal as our protagonist, Rene Saavedra. Uh, he's an actor we've talked about before. Um, uh, you know, another uh, just really talented actor uh, from uh, Mexico. Who, um, what was the, we talked about him on Blindness. Yeah. Was there anything else that we talked about him in, or was that it? I, th 
think that's was, the th- that's the only thing we've really talked about him in. But we we also like a lot of the other stuff he's done. I mean, I you know I'm a, a infrequent viewer of Mozart in the Jungle, of course, Itu Mama Tambien and uh, Moros Peros and Motorcycle Diaries. I mean, they're all um, you know films that we like him in that we've talked about before. But we've I think this is the only film we've done. Oh, other than Blindness. Yeah. Other than Blindness. Yeah. Thank goodness we uh, have yeah. this one too. Woof. <laughs> Blindness was so uh, loved by you. Cleanse the old blindness palette. Oh, so funny. Uh, You know, he is somebody who's worked with um, uh, Pablo uh, after this. He was in uh, Neruda, uh, about the Pablo Neruda, and Luis Nieco was in that also, and Jaime Vidal was in that also, and Diego Munoz. Uh, A lot of people um, returned to work with him. Alfredo Castro, of course. Um. I, I think that Gael just has this uh, this personality that works well for the <laughs> the ad exec. You know, he he sells, and I I love that about him in this particular film. He works so well. He's he's likable. He's somebody that you know he can do this ad pitch, and I'm like, yeah, okay, I I totally buy it. Um, he does that well. I also love the uh, the sense of family that he had in the story, though, and I think there's a real bond between him and his son that I really connected with. And it really, his relationship, constantly struggling relationship with uh, with his his ex Veronica, was really uh, touching. In particular, the scene when he um, you know gets that call, that kind of threatening call in the middle of the night, and he takes his his son um, over to uh, her place, and he sees her live in lover. And, uh, and leaves the son to to keep him safe. But as he's walking away, you just get this close-up of his face. And it's just like, it's so broken and hurt. And uh, I, I think that there's just so much connection through his eyes. And I think that's some, uh, something that Gael really excels at. Um, I just found so much connection with him in this film. film. You know, I, I kept... Uh, seeing him on screen and feeling like he was that uh, he was a, a playing a a really multi-layered character like he was he was an introvert right he was struggling with figuring out his own personal motivation to get up and get in front of people and this is what he was good at but when he was not you know pitching to somebody he would he would go somewhere else and try to figure out how to recharge and i i just really like that angle uh, of him as you know just as something i felt like i could really connect with he is doing he's in pre-production right now uh, as Zorro. Did you know that? No, really? That's interesting. I had no idea. Yeah, and get a load of this. The The screenplay and uh, is written by, and the film will be directed by, Jonas Cuaron, uh, son of uh, oh. Alfonso Cuaron, and uh, they worked together on uh, Gravity. Uh, and so it's... Uh, it, and Desierto. And Desierto. He wrote uh, Desierto. So it should be uh, interesting. It's in pre-production. Obviously, a lot can change, but it looks like uh, Bernal is uh, slated for the title character. The film is just called Z. That is exciting. I love that. I think so, too. I think so, too. I'm very excited about that. Okay, Alfredo Castro is back as Lucho Guzman. Ah, uh, Alfredo. You know, it's funny. I was... <laughs> I actually liked him in this film... Um, but I still was like, man, he, I, I want to see him play somebody that is a real likable character <laughs> because he's a really interesting character here. Um, and I thought there was a really interesting relationship between him and Renee, 
Um, but at the same time, I just like, oh, but he's still kind of, I mean, he's not the antagonist, so to speak, but he is still kind of an antag- antagonistic character for Renee. And, um, you know, it was interesting. And, you know, it, honestly, it was kind of a little heartbreaking at the end when, when there's the big party with all the yes people and he kind of calls and they didn't invite him. And he's just <laughs> like, oh, okay. It's just it's so pathetic. He was pathetic, but you know, I thought he was a breath of fresh air compared to the last uh, um, to the last two movies with him, and it shows that he can play just a different character, even if he's not likable. He's just different, you know. This was a yes. a very different role, and I I thought that was um, oh, what a relief uh, to actually see someone on screen that I liked, even though I didn't like. Uh, and uh, because <laughs> right. I, I I think you could call me a fan. I think he is a talented actor, and it's I, I think he picks roles that are intentionally sort of emotionally challenging, and it it takes craft to do that. Uh, but this role, it it was uh, I think essentially a more straightforward role, uh, but uh, one that was equally pivotal. I mean, we needed to have the balance. Uh, you know, on the other end of the fulcrum there. I mean, we need between um, Saavedra. Uh, uh, to work together, I what I like so much about their them together is that you could see that they they cared about the project. It felt like they cared about this whole project for the sake of the project, uh, even if they didn't necessarily care uh, about you know the the outcome. Guzman uh, was already invested and involved in the yes group, so you feel like he's already a political machine. And Saavedra was in, acting in response to that in some respect, but still, they came back together to to work together, and that that I, I found really satisfying. Yeah, I did too. I was a little a, a little questioning of his motivations when um, toward the end, when Renee shows up and and Lucho says something about uh, you know you better be careful of what happens with your son, and it's just like oh is, yeah. is he involved in the threats like it. I don't know. It just kind of threw me. I'm like, oh, is there is there more to his character that I wasn't realizing? Um, all of a sudden, it kind of piqued my curiosity. Like maybe there's more. But then they continue working together, and so I was like, okay. So I I couldn't quite figure out exactly what was going on with that relationship, but I felt like there was some really interesting stuff at work within it, regardless. Yeah, I agree with you, and I think it was it, it's really telling that 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 ends up being kind of a MacGuffin, right? That relationship. It, he, he very well uh, in in you know, to my ear was actually just warning him, right, as a as a friend yeah. and colleague. Which is entirely possible, yeah. and that's what was interesting about yeah. it, yeah. Who else do you want to talk about on this list here? Well, Antonia Zagers, we should talk uh, talk about her. We talked about her in the last uh, film, Postmortem. She plays Veronica, um, Renee's, uh, Renee's ex. Um, I thought that was a really interesting relationship, and I enjoyed her in the film. I enjoyed that she was kind of this, like, this uh, free-spirited political beast who was not afraid to speak her mind and, and get beaten up and thrown in jail. Um, and uh, but at the same time, uh, had this uh, obvious connection with Renee uh, because of their uh, their son Simon. Um, I, uh, I I found it just really interesting and in how some people will live these lives where they're you know what the message is is more important than than their family. And it was kind of a, it was kind of a touching and, and powerful and heartbreaking uh, kind of seeing that and how it affected Renee, who so clearly um, was still taken by her and affected by her and wanted to protect her, um, but also was so frustrated by her. It made for a really interesting character and relationship that you don't see very often. So I, I really enjoyed her in the film. Absolutely agree. Jaime Vidal, uh, who played Minister Fernandez, he was Dr. Castillo in uh, Postmortem. 
so we've seen him before. I I like him. That's right. I liked him then. I like him. Uh, I I liked him as the in the role as the minister. Um, you know, it was just fun to see kind of that. Uh, I don't know. I I think there's something really, uh, just awful. I, I think my favorite bit was. When he was eating the orange, he picks that orange off the little tree, and he's having that conversation with uh, with uh, Lucho, and he's peeling the orange, and he stuffs all the peel into the end of the cannon, yes. <laughs> and then, and then, and then Lucho kind of you know sees what he's doing, and then he just kind of pushes it farther down the cannon, like <laughs> sweeping stuff under the rug. It's just like this, that was a great little. <laughs> Subtle. A great little moment there, yeah. and stuffing it into a cannon of all things—it just you know, it's like <laughs> it's such a you know an awful device. And here they are, like sweeping it under the rug into the cannon. Uh, said a lot, yeah, truly. <laughs> uh, now we've already talked about the fact that we've had uh, we we have a lot of folks who were really involved in the the true events of the period that were on set. Yeah, um, not just some of the real people like the uh, the president, the um, uh, Patricio Elwin, um, and but I mean other actual people, uh, Chileans, uh, Patricio Bañados, Carlos Caselli, Florcita Motuda. They all act, they all play themselves um, and also appear in archival footage. But then you have a lot of people from the real No campaign. Gael Garcia Bernal's character is based on two people. Um, both of them appear in the in the film. Um, and a whole bunch of other no campaigners appear in the film. Most often, though, they appear as yes um, <laughs> campaigners, <laughs> which I think was just kind of a little bit of fun that they were having. Um, and uh, and then you have a bunch of other real people who are just playing themselves, um, which, you know, I, I think it was just a really interesting idea to kind of blend the reality into this. Um, and they filmed in a lot of the real locations where stuff actually happened. Um, so on some of the real sets that still are around, I mean, it was, it was interesting how much they were able to kind of tap into the realities of what was going on during this campaign uh, 27 years ago. And we have famous people. How weird was it to see what the, the famous person montage? That was really, uh, really interesting and kind of frighteningly enlightening to see which famous uh, people, um, speaking famous U.S. people, from uh, from here uh, showed up to support Pinochet, <laughs> like Jimmy Carter and Jimmy Swaggart. Uh, but then it was nice to see the actors, Richard Dreyfuss, Jane Fonda, and Christopher Reeve, uh, showing up in support of the No campaign. So that was, that was interesting. Little yeah, <laughs> very funny bit. Uh, let's talk just a little bit about getting it made. Uh, in particular, let's come back around here, round three, with cinematographer uh, Sergio Armstrong. I think you and I have exactly inverse opinions of their choice of, of film treatment. <laughs> <laughs> right. You loved it and then grew tired of it. Yeah. I was like... Doubting it as an idea, and then I started loving it. It so. turns out you were only uh, half right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I uh, I still think it's fantastic. And actually, what I loved about that kind of umatic look is the way that they, um, the way that it kind of made the colors kind of mush together, and um, like when you'd get a, a light in the frame, how it just kind of everything just like uh, blew away. It was so hot that it just kind of like the image would just explode. Um, I, I really enjoyed it, and but in particular, I think the reason for it, it was to blend all this archival footage into it, and I think that helped so much um, just create this world. So 
I'm all for it. To to be fair, I, the other thing that it does, or the other thing that they were able to do with it, is is not just to um, you know connect it to the the past, but also to the overall production design and the art design of the entire campaign supporting the movie. Right? I mean, all of the poster material, everything has that sort of fringe look, like where the with with color separations that feel just like the fringing that you get when you know when the lights coming in sideways on this on on the um, on the film it's 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 I, I thought it was really interesting that i'm i'm looking at the cover of the box that looks exactly like the um you know and the logo design and it all looks exactly like what i'm looking on at on screen and i i thought that was really cool one note that i will say the hollywood reporter did um uh say in in their uh, when they were talking about this film that they argued that the decision probably lessened the film's chances commercially and with Oscar voters. And I will say, watching this film, this was the first of the uh, the trilogy that was available to me on Blu-ray to watch. And I will say, <laughs> it was like funny ironic. watching this beautiful, I know, this beautiful Blu-ray um, image that really looked on par with the DVD quality images of the last two films. So I, I do think that The Hollywood Reporter may have something. That's so funny. May have something with that, yeah. Uh, you know, production design, hair and makeup, costumes. I mean, every everything that goes in to painting this film into the period, uh, and and I think we can say the entire trilogy uh, excels in this regard. This felt like 1988 to me, and I think you and I, I mean, 1988 was kind of central to us. We were like right there. That's practically when we became sentient. I will say. Um, the fact that Gael had a rat tail said everything about <laughs> yes. the success of, yes. of these departments. Yes. Uh, that that we're going to go to Margarita Marchi <laughs> and the hair and makeup. Uh, she was makeup, but uh, anyway, it was it was great, great, great. Uh, Andrea Cignoli is back in the editor's booth. Um, probably the most challenging edit of the three films. Yeah, I mean, we've already talked about how, how complicated it is, uh, you know, taking this archival footage and intercutting it with all the recreations, or I guess it's not really cre- recreations, but real footage that they're creating of, okay, here, let's create a, uh, uh, you know, a police, uh, you know, spraying everybody down in the streets and beating people in the streets. Now let's take some footage and we'll cut that in and figuring out how to, one, shoot around that and kind of find ways to kind of, okay, we got to shoot this angle here because we have this other footage here. Um, but then also for her to uh, to find the right ways to edit it. It was really incredible and impressive. So I, I really uh, I really enjoyed the work done here. Um, now you have <laughs> you you dove in to the history and we have a little <laughs> bit of history to, to report. I think the entire timeline of Pinochet's rule. You know, just for our listeners, I I knew some about Pinochet, but I didn't really know, um, you know, kind of much in detail. So after watching all these films, I'm like, you know, we've kind of explored quite a bit of the period of Pinochet uh, as his uh, as the dictator of Chile from 1973 to uh, 1989, I think, or in 90. Um, you know, I just I, I found him to be kind of a fascinating character. Um I, you know, so I, I wrote a few things down, um, just a few. <laughs> um, 
this this particular story ended this 16 and a half years in power. Um, the fact, uh, this is a, a quote from Wikipedia, uh, the fact that the dictatorship respected the results is attributed to pressure from the big business, the international community, and unease with extended Pinochet rule within the dictatorship. Uh, so I, I think that speaks a lot to uh, kind of how every, I mean, he only really did this whole crazy vote, let's vote and see if I should stay in power for another eight years thing because of a lot of pressure he was getting from around the world. Um, so it, you know, it speaks to a dictator kind of like, I don't know, weirdly paying attention to stuff. So, um, but this is a guy, he, he was uh, Salvador Allende's commander in chief of the army as of August 23rd, 1973. He took power September 11th, 1973 in a U.S. backed coup d'etat leading a military uh, junta of four people that deposed democratically elected socialist president Salvador Allende um, and this this junta was sworn in the ne- that night, and the next day they drafted a document suspending the Constitution and Congress, establishing this junta as the supreme authority. He was. This is what I find so. This is what happens in the world of dictatorships. <laughs> he was sworn in as the first president, and the four members of the junta they agreed verbally to rotate as president. Um, <laughs> then they established this advisory committee with um, which he ended up filling in with his supporters. And then one of the first things they do is they vote to eliminate the idea of rotating leaders because they said it'll cause too much red tape, thereby making him the only one who is going to be leading. <laughs> Oh, those sneaky dictators. So the sneaky. things that they do. Yes. Um, he pretty much said, you know, you know, six months later, oh, we're never going back to civilian rule. There's no plans for that. And then December 18th, 1974, he's declared supreme leader of the nation. That's so, it's yes, sounding that's a little bit familiar again. Right. I know, isn't it? Um, he, uh, he remained, uh, you know, after this, uh, after he was voted out of office, he still remained commander in chief of the Chilean army until 1998. And he was a Senator for life in accordance with his 1980 constitution that he had come up with. However, he was arrested under, under an international arrest warrant in London, October 10th, 1998 in connection with numerous human rights violations where he was released on grounds of ill health, returned to Chile in 2000. In 2004, a judge ruled he was healthy enough to go on trial. And then by the time he died in 06, there were about 300 criminal charges that were still pending against him in Chile for numerous human rights violations during his rule, plus tax evasion and embezzlement during and after his rule. Uh. Um, he was accused of having corrupt, corruptly amassed at least 28 million US dollars. Despite the indictment and 300 arrests, he only served time in house arrest. Um, and then, just to put everything in perspective, during the period of Pinochet's rule, various investigations have identified the murder of 1,200 to 3,200 people, with up to 80,000 people forcibly interned and as many as 30,000 tortured. According to the Chilean government, the official number of deaths and forced disappearances stands at 3,095. So that, you know, that really helps back to the film. It helps to paint the context of why it was so challenging for this young man uh, played by Bernal to come in and and demonstrate his awareness of what happened in Chile during this period uh, with such a happy fun, frivolous uh, campaign. And the one of the most striking sequences to me was when the uh, elder gentleman, uh, part of the, the no campaign, stood up and, and uh, ended up swearing his way out of the room uh, because he felt so uh, incensed and offended by 
that approach. Why can't we focus on the crimes that were committed here, his perspective? And I, I thought that was really chilling. Oh, absolutely. And and how it really, you know, may it was offensive that, you know, this is what you're going to do when, you know, I've had, you know, people that mm-hmm. I, I know and love, uh, you know, disappear or killed, um, you know, and and this is what how we're going to go about this. I mean, I would I would be offended, too. Um, and it speaks, you know, frighteningly just to the world of advertising and how it's not about that. It's about this different thing and just appealing to people in ways that you wouldn't expect, but it really kind of can diminish the actual story. Uh, so given all of the horrendous atrocities, uh, how'd it do at award season? <laughs> <laughs> Left turn. <laughs> Oh, uh, this is a, you know it's a it's a strong film. It had thirteen wins, fifteen other nominations. Uh, this was the first Chilean film to be nominated for best foreign language film. It was nominated that year. It lost to Amor, uh, which was quite the popular film that year. Um, at the Cannes Film Festival, Pablo won the CICAE award, which is the International Confederation of Art Cinemas, um, which is a, a French organization, a nonprofit uh, that supports and promotes art film. So um, he won that. And then at the Altazor Awards, the Chilean uh, Film Awards, Jaime Videl won Best Actor for his uh, performance as the minister. Outstanding. And, uh, you know, when we think about his budgetary performance and your deep and deepening relationship with um, with, (laughs) with Pablo Lorraine's brother and producer, uh, what did we find out? Well, unfortunately, once again... I uh, haven't been able to get anything out of him. Uh, there's no budget info anywhere online I could find. Um, the movie premiered at the Cannes Film Festival in 2012 before opening in Chile on August 9th, 2012, and in the U.S. on February 15th, 2013. I think the casting of Gael Garcia Bernal and the Oscar nomination helped boost, boost the box office take of this one as it went on to make almost $2.3 million domestically and $2.9 internationally, at least what I could find, making for an adjusted gross of about 5.5 million. That's pretty much all I could find, though. Well, here's hoping it did better than that, because I think it deserves to have done better than that, Andy. Let's rank it. Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel, or just swipe over in your podcast app of choice and hit the flickchart link, and it will take you right over to no on flickchart. And you'll want to do that because searching for no on any of these sites is disastrous. Just Trust oh. us. Follow the links. <laughs> I think people should try just to see just try, just how hard it is to find no this on the internet and see if you could find this movie. Go ahead, do that. That'll be that's an exercise. <laughs> oh, oh the internet is the worst. It sure is. <laughs> Where do we start? All right. First up, we have no or hot fuzz. Oh. As much as I appreciated no, I'm, I'm going hot, hot fuzz. fuzz. No or La Femme Nikita. Haven't seen that pop up in quite a while. Uh, you know, I would choose no. I'm going to say no. Absolutely. No or Gremlins. It's totally Gremlins for me. Really? It's childhood thing, man. It, uh, it's... I'm not going to be able to let go of that one. Okay. We're going to have to do it. I okay. Am, I am here we go. I'm no. Okay. Here we go. One, two, two three, three rock. Paper. First one. I am shamed. I took it there. All right. No or Gallipoli. Wow, that hasn't popped up in a little while. Truly. I am uh, no on this one. I am no also. All right, next up. No or The Bourne Legacy. You know, if it were any of the other Bourne films, I would pick it. But it's Legacy. I'm going to go with no. Yeah, I'm going to go with no. 
No, or La Vie en Rose. Again, La Vie en Rose was a beautiful performance in a movie that wasn't as beautiful. I am no. Yeah, I agree. I'm going to say no. No, or Sophie's Choice. <laughs> oh, that's ironic. <laughs> uh, I am I am no, with all due respect to Meryl Streep. Uh, yes, I'm going to say no. No, or King's Row. Little Ronnie Reagan. No. I'm going to say no. All right, man, that puts it at 190 on our chart. 190 out of 302. That's uh, pretty high for our Pablo Lorraine series. Yeah, you know, that's not bad. I, I That hot fuzz, the hot fuzz block is tough. It really is. That's a hard it, one. It, because we're, we're, we're rarely going to rock, paper, scissors on hot fuzz. That's You know what true. I mean? Well, uh, what does that do for your letterboxed uh, review? And it, this has been a lot of fun because I I feel like uh, I... I, I I tried. I feel like I need a rule where I need to not read your letterbox review before we talk about it. <laughs> well, I'm I'm debating if I'm going to start uh, writing them after we've yeah, had our conversation. Me too. I'm for the exact it. same reason. Did I? Did you? So you read mine before you? No, I didn't. You didn't. See, I, I did. I, I abstained. <laughs> you abstained. Well, I will say I did not read your review until I had written and posted my review. I thought that was that was enough. Um, that's good. Yeah, that's but good. I, I'm gratified to hear that we we largely agreed. Yeah, I yeah I have three and a half out of five for me on this one. I was a, a strong four stars and a like. I definitely was a like for me too. This I you know I think that Pablo uh, can make really great films, and if anything that I've discovered while watching this particular series, while he can make some really challenging films that I never want to watch again, like Tony Manero, he can also make some still challenging films like Postmortem that I definitely want to watch again. And he can also do some really fascinating films like No or even Jackie that I, I just I, I find so exciting and interesting. Um, he's a filmmaker that I think can do a lot of really interesting stuff with the medium. And uh, I, I mean, now I'm looking at his body of work and I like want to go back and, and fill it in. I want to see all the rest of the stuff that he's done. I do, too, because I feel like what we've watched is a progression of his development as a filmmaker. And I am really excited about it. I, I wish that... Uh, I, I wish that we knew what was coming up after Jackie, right? Um, because uh, I'm. This is now his is now a name that I am looking for um, in in filmmaking. We've seen him go from films that were, um, you know, a little bit unfocused, uh, films that were unengageable in Tony Manero for me, to films that offer. Uh, you know, surprisingly smart structure to just nailing all the hard choices for me and still making a film that's entertaining, that's well-paced, that it, that is something that I can dive into and want to learn more about that is tricking me uh, in all the right ways. I am, I am super into Pablo Lorraine uh, at this point. And I'll tell you, here's an interesting aside. I had the opportunity today to interview um, a professor uh, from Chile, from Santiago, who moved here. He's a professor at Berkeley, and he moved to the United States uh, in 1984, and uh, to do various things. He's been back and forth to Chile. He lived in London for a while, but the, but he he essentially left Chile in 1984 and uh, to teach. And I told him before we started, I said, "Are you are you a movie fan, professor?" And he said, "Ah, you know, yeah." I said I'm. I, I do another podcast. It's a, a movie podcast, uh, and and we're wrapping up our series on Pablo Lorraine. Uh, with uh, and before I could even say the title of the film, he said, "No, oh, we 
really like that movie. You know, I thought that was very cool, especially for a guy who uh, ended up in his formative years um, living through that in Santiago. And we didn't we didn't have an opportunity to go into any of that detail, but I'm deeply curious now uh, what that life was like. So absolutely. Um, it was just, it's interesting. And it, it just makes me um, makes me all that more uh, all that much more interested in in more of Pablo Lorraine's stories. They are super fun. <laughs> super fun. <laughs> Pablo Lorraine equals just, super fun. I just clearly I turned off before the last two words came out of my mouth, and that's what that's what's always cocked and ready to go. Super fun. That's fantastic. I am an idiot. Where do we go from here, Andy? Well, we are going to be returning to Japan to dig back into our Hayao Miyazaki series that we started November of 2015. If you can believe it was that Oof. long ago, I cannot. Uh, I know I can't either when I was looking. Um, we're going to be looking at the three films arguably considered his greatest, uh, Princess Mononoke, Spirited Away, and Howl's Moving Castle. Should be fun. You, you, may, you may ask yourself, if these are arguably his greatest films, why did we start with those other films? <laughs> what, what would we say to that, Oh, Andy? Pete, who would ask something like that? <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I don't, well, I remember talking about it. I just don't remember an answer. Did we come to an we answer in went, 2015? We, we looked at the first of his career, the last of his career, and one in the middle that, uh, oh, that was right. a, a well-loved one. Uh, that you know, was the, right. You know, that's, that's kind of the reason that that last series ended up the way it did. And I still enjoy it. I think it's an interesting series and an interesting way to kind of look at the, the really kind of the variety of stuff across his career. But this one is really kind of hitting um, a particular point when he was really just kind of knocking stuff out of the park. Uh, and, and you have to remember, when we came up with that last series for November 2015, it was probably in November 2014 that we were even talking about it. So we we're entirely different <laughs> people at that point and made entirely different decisions. Uh, so anyway, I'm very excited about it. I can't wait to dig into these movies, and um, and and I think I'll drag the kids in. They're different people too. That'll be super fun. Until then, uh, Andy, I think you know, I, I've got to go to bed. All right. Well, I got to go pitch a client on a new commercial. It is the end all be all, and America is ready for it. Amazon giveth, Andy. As Amazon always doeth. I got uh, I got a two star, two star coming in okay. from uh, from William on uh, in, in August two thousand thirteen, and he says something that I don't think people say enough about you know movies. He says the film is way too focused on the main character. <laughs> I mean, that is the kind of careful critique. No, I, I give William trouble. That is not where it ends. I will continue. The film is way too focused on the main character, who does not exemplify any heroic virtues, and yet he is the protagonist who wins at the end, giving the plot some confusion. The film portrays the other aspects of the story very well, the activists, the oppressors, the challenge, but not enough to give the audience a real sense of understanding. Perhaps... If it had focused less on the main individual. 
Oh, um, wow. <laughs> I, do you know what's funny? Is I feel like he's trying to say my big criticism about the last two films, that this was like maybe should have chosen a different voice to carry this movie. But I I applaud I applaud this review for the way the way it approached this particular criticism. Way too focused on the protagonist. That's funny. Yeah. That's funny. Well, I've got a one star by Robert Rosen who says unhappy with film. <laughs> now, I don't know if Robert is just unhappy with film, he's just All unhappy film, with film yes. in general, the media, uh, you know, and maybe maybe he just gives one stars across the board and he says this on all of them, unhappy with film. Too many I chemicals. It's just yes, no. <laughs> he felt like he had to de- Amazon sent him a, a negative, he had to develop it himself. Ah. <laughs> oh. Thanks, Amazon. You know what I got the other day, Pete? Stephen King's latest. Want to borrow it? Do you know who you're talking to? What do you mean? Andy, when's the last time I read a paper book? It's been like decades. I would much rather use Kindle or better yet, Audible. What am I thinking? I don't read paper books anymore either. I am an audiobook guy all the way. For those of you looking to listen to the books behind the films we talk about here on The Next Reel, get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at thenextreel.com slash audible. It's the way to go. All right, we're going to play a little game. I'm going to name a series from season six, and you try to guess how many movies from it were adaptations. No, hold on. Hold on. No, it's my turn. Ah, damn. First up, disease films. Uh, okay. Uh, well, there's the Omega Man and the Andromeda Strain. Um, oh, and Blindness. One more. One more. Um, oh, Children of Men? That's the one. Okay, how about It's Real Life, Jack? Oh, that's easy. Black Hawk Down, Seabiscuit. Betty Davis. Uh, uh, the Little Foxes. Um, whatever Happened to Baby Jane, now Voyager. Okay, this one's easy. The Godfather Trilogy. <laughs> well, The Godfather. Oh, so good. Well, we've covered lots of great movies that started out as books. Books like The Danish Girl, Certain Women. Howl's Moving Castle or The Black Stallion. So many great movies from so many great sources, and they're all on Audible. Producing this podcast is a lot of fun, but takes a lot of time. We've dropped the dynamically inserted ads because they're so annoying and have no connection to our content. Plus, they just jam those things in wherever they see fit. We listened to you when you said you didn't like them, so now we're directly appealing to you, our dear listener. Please consider an Audible subscription to help support The Next Reel and our family of podcasts. I have been using Audible along with my family for decades now. I love it, and I have read hundreds of books through it. I couldn't be more pleased with their service, and I know you'll love it too. Head to thenextreel.com slash audible and get your free trial. It really helps us out, and you have a world of over 200,000 audiobooks open to you. So much great material available. Dive in with a free 30-day trial at thenextreel.com slash audible. Start listening to amazing audiobooks of your favorite movie source material with your first free audiobook today. That's thenextreel.com slash audible. (laughs) 